0: This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Good morning. It's Monday. It's the 29th of
1: November. I'm Tabitha McIntosh in the breakfast slot. And today I'm talking about moral panics and new technology. Has social media broken teenage girls forever? Have smartphones destroyed a generation? Is there any evidence for any of this? Stay tuned and you'll find out. Dance along with the music.
0: This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TTRadio. Tune in, talk it out, with Teachers Talk Radio.
1: Dramatic music continues. And for once, the dramatic music is appropriate to the tone of conversations surrounding um, my topic today which is of course how smartphones are destroying all our children uh, a week ago the atlantic published an article um, that made the airwaves and circulated around the world now i've got my lovely assistant here today uh, my partner sebastian who's going to be helping me out with some reading for extra dramatic excitement so sebastian if you could tell us the
2: title of this article uh, the title today is Facebook's dangerous experiment with teenage girls. The preponderance of the evidence suggests that social media is causing real damage to adolescents. Yeah, you'll notice that um, <laughs> that the title Facebook's dangerous experiment with teenage
1: girls isn't quite as strongly borne out by the subsequent subtitle, the preponderance of the evidence suggests. Now this followed on from the September release that also got an enormous amount of um, attention the whistleblower data from facebook which again sebastian if you could dramatically read that one for us
2: uh, yep facebook knows instagram is toxic for teen girls company documents show in its own in-depth research shows a significant teen mental health issue that facebook plays down in public sounds pretty bad doesn't it
1: but as kevin drum pointed out the leaked data showed one thing precisely and that's that among teenage girls instagram has a net negative effect on exactly one thing body image but a net positive effect on everything else so that simply doesn't support the argument that instagram is an overall problem for teen girls um a lot of people have written about the issues with the facebook's dangerous experiment article um one of which is that just essentially as we'll be coming back to over and over again causation and correlation or even the existence of a phenomenon in the first place are never truly established in any of these discussions. So I'll say from the outset that maybe Instagram is destroying a generation. Maybe smartphones are, are killing all our children and rendering them into virtual cyber goldfish. Um, <laughs> Matt Ben David says, "What's up, sir?" Oh hi, <laughs> Matt. <Ben-David. laughs> We've all met in my friend's garden. So uh, yeah, there you go. Um, but maybe it doesn't and um, we essentially need further study that's what i'm going to go there however consider me always a great big skeptic on these things um, especially anything that seems particularly overall and apocalyptic in tone it's really important to note that the atlantic's dangerous experiment article is written by jonathan Hay with gene m twenge and that this is gene m twenge's thing it's her entire career um she had a huge 2017 article titled dramatically. The Atlantic,
2: have smartphones destroyed a generation? And the next bit please. Oh, uh, more comfortable on uh, online than out partying. Post-millennials are safer physically than adolescents have ever been, but they're on the brink of a mental health crisis. Indeed, a mental health
1: crisis on the brink of, it could happen at any moment, it's apocalyptic. So she, in that article and in the book that um, it accompanied, described, and um, came up with the term iGen, which is her term for those born between 1965 and 2012, as being on the brink of the worst mental health crisis in decades. Much of this deterioration can be traced to their phone. And there is some real data showing that um, children's mental health and mental health generally is, is becoming worse. Um, I'll just read you some rather dry data. According to information from Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, the proportion of 12 to 17 year olds that experienced a major depressive episode within the previous year grew from 9% in 2004 to 12.5% in 2015. Um, CDC's Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report showed an increase in suicide among 15 to 19 year olds between 2007 and 2015. Um, The study that Hate and Twins used for their November piece on Instagram um, comes from a British study, Temporal Trends in Annual Incidence Rates for Psychiatric Disorders and Self-Harm Among Children and Adolescents in the UK, 2003 to 2018. Thank you for hanging with me there while we discuss some of the statistics. Um, But all of it always comes with this sort of thing. Sebastian, if you could read this in a suitably doctory manner.
2: The number of young people seeking help for psychological distress appears to have increased in recent years. Changes to diagnostic criteria, reduced stigma and increased awareness may partly explain our results. But we cannot rule out true increases in incidents occurring in the population. Right. So to put it simply, and we'll
1: have people discussing it in a slightly more complex manner. When I was a, a teenager in the mid 1980s, it wasn't talked about. You know, like there, there were a range of articles. I remember I'm um, discovering the concept of bulimia when um, Just 17 magazine told me not to do it. And I was like, wait, you can vomit up the food you just ate and the calories are cancelled out. Um, <clears throat> so we had the birth of the... Uh, awareness about eating disorders happen then but things like self-harm uh, true discussion of depression all of those sorts of things did not happen at all at the time so the big issue here is it's very hard to unpick out incidents of reporting versus incidents of actual growth um you get a lot of people doing the same thing with autism saying a. Uh, what is causing this explosion of autism? It must be vaccines, it must be Bill Gates, it must be demons, it must be something. Um, and other people saying we just have an increase in diagnosis. That's all. You know, there's there's no increase at all. What you're seeing is an increase of noticing the phenomenon. So it's important to note that not everyone agrees with this data. So the pesky issue of correlation and causation. Uh here's Vicky Rideout responding in 2017 through the LSE blog to that big Atlantic
2: article, are smartphones destroying a generation? The distinction between correlation and causation is not a mere technicality to acknowledge before moving on to a preordained conclusion. It is fundamental to a correct interpretation of the work. It is in fact entirely possible that unhappy teens choose to spend more time with screen media than their peers do, rather than that heavy screen media use is causing um, unhappiness. So, thank you Sebastian for reading that so beautifully,
1: but it's the issue here, if you're a depressed person, you are more likely to spend more time on your smartphone, on the internet, than you are if you are a happy person. So, that's the correlation causation we'll be coming back to on this particular issue. Teens with problems spend more time on their phones talking about those problems. Whether or not that's actually a net negative effect is a different question altogether. Certainly it's associated with with higher use. I know you all tuned in this morning to hear me gabble through statistics really quickly. Um, I like this one. Catherine Lumbee, enough with the moral panics over smartphones. Again, this is in response to um, the Twenge article. The kids are all right, she says. Now, she does research with um, Australian teenagers, and what she does is not just look at incidents of, um, you know, smartphone use, but what people are doing with those smartphones. And she says, Twen just found some alarming results about the levels of depression and anxiety in the cohort of teens she studied, but there are always many other factors that need to be taken into account. The first is that we are now, thankfully, far more aware of mental illness and quicker to address it when our children are young. In previous generations, many young people and adults just battled on and hid their feelings. Uh, Lisa Guernsey, writing for Slate in an article that was also quite influential in response to the, you know, alarmist 2017, smartphones are destroying a generation, says it um, fundamentally is is pointing out that there's a, a fundamental social shift in how we talk about mental illness that confounds the meaningfulness of the data. Um, but also that it relies on self-reporting and that self-reporting is itself dependent on our understanding of depression and anxiety and etc. cetera. Again, these were not questions being asked or answered in the same way when you know, people like me were 15 in the mid 80s. So her article, don't take away your teen's phone. Smartphones are linked to problems, but they haven't destroyed a generation. Um,
2: points out this about her family. So just a little bit of uh, family anthropology. My daughters, their father and I, have somehow developed an increasingly rich vocabulary for talking about depression and mental illness. Dinner conversations and car rides will often touch on our loved one's mental health, anxieties and needs to find spaces for reflection. Conversations (laughs) unlike anything I recall from my teenage years of the 80s and 90s. Across our society, we see a dawning awareness of depression. From suicide prevention walks to a lack of stigma about seeing a therapist, to an increasing sophistication among professionals about how to evaluate symptoms. Could that awareness itself be affecting identification of depression? Could it be affecting our teens in unintended ways? Clearly, at least in my house, it is already affecting my parenting. So anecdotal, but absolutely the case.
1: Um, certainly my experience of talking to teenagers is that everyone, especially the more online teenagers, um, have very complex understandings of complex psych- psychiatric and psychological conditions. I've plenty of incidents of children diagnosing themselves with borderline personality disorder recently in a way that they certainly weren't doing when I started working in schools in um, the early 2000s. Where's the science in all of this? It's really tricky. It's always really tricky. So 2019, the UCL did a big study. Again, we keep going back to Instagram. Depression in girls linked to higher use of social media. Research suggests a link between social media use of Uses and depressive symptoms were stronger for girls compared with boys. But the UCL study itself brings up our new breast friend, the problems of separating correlation and causation as well as reporting. So as they say, inevitably, there's the chicken and egg, egg question as to whether more dissatisfied children who to begin with are less pleased with their body shape and have fewer friends, then spend more time on social media. Nonetheless, and I've put this in bold, it is likely that excessive use of social media does lead to poorer confidence and mental health. Um, Professor Simon Wesley, ex-president of the Royal College of Psychiatrists, still says we still cannot definitely say that social media uses causes poor mental health, though the evidence is starting to point in that direction. So making policies um, and pronouncements based on Very weak evidence, evidence which fundamentally confuses correlation and causation, not when the studies are doing it, but when it gets reported, when it's Instagram destroying teenage girls, when it's smartphones destroying a generation, when it's the idea that, um, as we'll get to attention span, that children are irreparably damaged forever and ever by their use of this. It's all built on much more tentative science and needs much more research before we get histrionic and dramatic about our solutions to it. As uh, Nesreen Malik said in
2: 2019. Um, But in truth, there is no consensus, dark or otherwise. Even the University College London experts who led the study on screen time are reluctant to issue guidelines on where to set the threshold. Setting daily limits, they say, is not the right focus. Instead, parents should be thinking, are you getting enough sleep, enough exercise? Are you spending enough time with your family? It depends if you want to spend time with your family. of course. Um, that, that
1: dark consensus line, that, that links to my favourite of these post-2017 smartphones are destroying a generation um, articles, because it's a particularly loopy piece in the New York Times that burst into an unprepared world in 2018. All conspiracy and apocalypticism guns blazing. It's it's gorgeously fun. And it's called... like The level of hyperbole cannot be prepared for sufficiently in this one. A dark consensus about screens and kids begins to emerge in Silicon Valley. Quotation. I am convinced the devil lives in our phones. <laughs> now, who is it that's convinced the devil lives in our phones? Is it, you know, the Westboro Baptist Church or some other deeply marginal um, you know, if you're if you're British, you'll be picturing like the Southern Baptists or you know, some some preacher or televangelist making claims in order to raise money no no this is silicon valley executives who are all on record in this deranged piece talking about how the devil's in phones and they're destroying their own children um if i sound like i'm evoking frankenstein there that's because they do it all by their very own self um i'm gonna read this and sebastian i'm asked you to to read the bit in bold among these is chris anderson the former editor of wired and now the chief executive of a robotics and drone company He's also the founder of geekdad.com. Right? Ready for him? On the scale between candy and crack cocaine, it's closer to crack cocaine, <laughs> Mr. Anderson said of screens. Technologists <laughs> building these products and writers observing the tech revolution were naive, he said. We thought we could control it, Mr Anderson said. And this is beyond our powers to control. this is going straight to the pleasure centers of the developing brain this is beyond our capacity as regular parents to understand we have created a monster it's alive this image of these silicon valley people with their like hopelessly the word slavery comes up over and over again and zombie hopelessly enslaved robotic zombie children hoist by the technological pitard that their parents themselves had created. Um, my take here is that here as elsewhere, there's an enormous amount of virtue signalling by the rich about how they parent. Um, in the early eighties, the most benighted person to be at a school was the child whose parents didn't let them watch television because it was bad for them. So there's no way, no way of communicating with any of the rest of us. Um, but that was, it was such a virtue signaling position. It was such a way of showing that you were a good parent and the other parents were terrible parents. And it went hand in hand with not being allowed to eat, you know, biscuits and sweets. And God forbid ever watch Grange Hill, aside from anything else, which would ruin a generation as we are all ruined. Um, I like this one. So uh, Jason Toff, who works for the video platform Vine, is one of the few people in this article who's basically like, uh, your hair's on fire, calm down everyone. He says, uh, like, he believes it's no better or worse than a book, an iPad. Uh, This opinion is unpopular enough with his fellow tech workers that he now feels there's a stigma. One reaction I I got just yesterday was, doesn't it worry you that all the major tech execs are limiting screen time? And I was like, maybe it should, but I guess I've always been skeptical of norms. People are just scared of the unknown. It's contrarian, Mr. Toff said, but I feel like I'm speaking for a lot of parents that are afraid of speaking out for fear of judgment. And he thinks back to his own childhood, growing up, watching a lot of television and says, I think that turned out okay. We'll be looking at the um, television panic shortly. Now, <laughs> and this, if we're talking about virtue signaling, this is the kind of stuff I'm talking about because then it casually
2: mentions Frank Barbieri. Sebastian, can you read us about Frank Barbieri? Uh, So he's a San Francisco-based executive at the startup Pebble Post that tracks online activity to send direct mail advertising, tries to limit his five-year-old daughter's screen time to Italian language content.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So the kid's allowed to play on the iPad, but only if it's in Italian, because that is more prestigious than, I don't know, Baby Shark in English or whatever. And then also, Mr. Barbieri goes on to say, and uh, we kind of want to go on holiday to Italy. That's where we like to be. So go for it, Frank. Right, uh, it is time for the education news for Gail Glen, and then we'll come back. (laughs) Matt is saying, bueno.
0: This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glen.
3: England, the Department for Education has said it will employ attendance advisors at a rate of up to £500 per day to tackle persistent absence in schools. Schools Minister Robin Walker said every lesson that we can prevent a child from missing is another building block to their life chances development and well-being. I recognise that Covid is still with us and causing some unavoidable absence but this is all the more reason that we must all take action to address every avoidable reason for a child not being in school. Kevin Courtney, Joint General Secretary of the NEU Teaching Union said, school leaders are no strangers to the diverse causes of absenteeism and have procedures in place to work on relationships with families and build a way back for pupils who have become disengaged from learning. This work is important, but can often be time consuming. Any support forthcoming is to be welcomed, but is also incumbent on government to recognise its role in some of the causes of school absence. This ranges from a narrow and arid curriculum driven by a culture of testing, which drains much of the pleasure away from learning, right through to the turbulence that disadvantage in poverty can bring to families where children may often have to take on carer roles themselves. We must also consider the sheer number of SEND pupils as yet undiagnosed and the mental health issues which have only increased during the pandemic. Finding parents and punishing students is not the approach that will address these issues. In Scotland, educational institutes are increasingly introducing gender neutral toilet facilities. Schools in Dundee, East Renfrewshire and Edinburgh have all introduced these facilities following warnings in 2019 from Scottish National Party politicians and by the Scottish Equality and Human Rights Commission that schools would leave themselves open to lawsuits if they did not provide them. Parents across Scotland have however raised concerns over gender-neutral toilets in secondary schools, which can see 12-year-old girls and 18-year-old men sharing facilities. Harry Scott, Scottish Borders councillor said, why is it not possible to have male, female and gender-neutral toilets, which would cater for the needs of everyone? Why can that not be achieved in our schools? This has been your daily education's news briefing
1: one of the sponsors of this show is Oxford University Press if you need support with your phonics teaching Oxford University Press now has three Department for Education validated programs to help you read write incorporated phonics Floppy's phonics and the brand new essential letters and sounds Essential letters and sounds will get all your children reading well, quickly, using phonics books you may already have in your classroom. Developed by the Knowledge Schools Trust English Hub, it's affordable, easy to use, and makes teaching phonics with letters and sounds more effective. To find out more about these programmes and receive support from your OUP expert local educational consultant, visit www.oxfordprimary.com forward slash phonics. That's www oxfordprimary.com forward slash phonics hi we're back i'm tabitha McIntosh, and this is the breakfast show and i am talking today with my lovely assistant sebastian about moral panics surrounding new technology specifically smartphones but we're going to be looking at television soon Um, and some of the discourse uh, hyperinflated hyperbolic terrified discourse that happened around television as well as some of the other moral panics surrounding new technology. What we're building up to people is the idea that when we have the advent of a new technology an an enormously socially transformational new technology, um, the, I mean, I will be defining the phrase moral panic too, don't worry, um, that people get incredibly anxious and we have similar tropes appearing over and over again. Um, The disappearing agency of our children, the idea that the new generation can't read anymore, or isn't as intelligent, or um, is stands up to authority more, won't respect their elders. These things happen, whether we're talking about the introduction of cars in the early 60s and teenagers having their own cars as a phenomenon um, in the United States, which caused an enormous amount of panic and worry about what was going to happen. They were all going to get pregnant and run away and join gangs. Um, or whether we're talking about television. Um, and a lot of anxiety about the role of women, especially mothers, whether they're parenting properly anymore. And now, of course, we see all of that with discussions around screen time and smartphones. Um, we just finished talking about the idea that um, <laughs> that there is, there's a huge range of, of middle-class parenting value inherent in saying that you're limiting screen time for your children. No one will brag about about letting their children spend eight hours a day on an iPad, just as no one would brag about letting their toddlers spend eight hours a day watching television in 1993. But it's very much a way of signifying that you're a good parent. So just for context, my own child is a school refusing transgender autistic 17 year old who without smartphones and the internet really just would be living in my back bedroom without any access to education but instead she lives on and through her phone. Is that negative? I would say, oh God, no. Finding online communities, being able to talk to people around the world, finding friends and partners and humour and excitement and an endless wealth of new information has transformed her life for the better. And that's true of many, many people. Um, If you think about the lives of people who are disabled and in a way that they're not able to leave the house easily, um, for neurodivergent people, for young LGBT or old LGBTQ people who are you know, the only gay in the village syndrome. Well, now it's a global village. We can all talk, we can all interact. So for those of us who fall into any of those categories, as for all of us, there's an enormous amount to be gained through social media. And my child spends more time on social media, more time on her smartphone because of the things that limit her real life. Um, That doesn't, however, stop the thoughtless reproduction of endless discussion about the deleterious social effects of spending time on your smartphone. Um, This particular one, at the same time as all these articles were coming out in October and November, um, the University of McGill uh, led a province-wide campaign to make people get unhooked from their mobile devices. So this is from November 9th, 2021. Um,
2: Sebastian, could you read us that, including the title? Making real connections. Organisers of the campaign suggest they're not against smartphones or the internet in general, but they want to remind young people of the benefits of maintaining some measure of control over <clears throat> over on their online lives. Ultimately, they see the 24 hour challenge as an opportunity for youngsters to learn how current <coughs> screen time can allow them to take better care of themselves and to keep a sense of balance in our hyperconnected world. world. Oh, you notice there that it says it's hyper-connected
1: world but that somehow disconnecting from that will allow you to make real connections, which is a binary I would question. That was my point of mentioning my child, is my child makes real connections through their smartphone in a way that just life, boring flesh life, just doesn't offer. Um, What's interesting here is the the guy who's leading the study, a man called Vessier, says that um, while the scientific community is divided, on precisely how screen time negatively affects children's development and health. He says, overall, the Internet as a whole has generally done more harm than good, particularly with the rise of social media platforms such as Facebook, Instagram and TikTok. That is not established fact. That's not established science. Um, The relationship of correlation and causation is hopelessly confused, as we discussed in the first part. The reporting, the self-reporting nature of depression and happiness indexes mean that it's not a reliably trackable phenomenon. And also the rise in awareness, largely driven by smartphones and social media usage in how depression, anxiety, um, self-scoring, self-assessment of symptoms, assessment of other symptoms, all of those things have exponentially increased, which means that it's very hard to pick out what actually has increased versus what has not. Um, and we get these little weasel phrases, generally has scientific consensus is divided and then a big statement, but obviously it must be bad because I said so, because I don't like it or something, right? So so this is again, Vessier speaking, the rising rates of learning and motivation problems, burnout, mental illness, anxiety, body image and identity issues, loneliness, misinformation, polarization and conflict that characterize our times can all can you read me the bit in bold to some extent be linked to increased screen time and a decrease in both quality face-to-face interaction and quality alone time right so so much you have to assume is true that bundled up in that to some extent you have to assume that all these phenomena are real in the first place i love the idea that we are more polarized than we used to be you'd grown up in the 80s and spent every weekend on a march against maggie thatcher you certainly wouldn't think we're more polarized now than we were then um but also that there's that to some extent it's just impressionistic and then your man himself samuel bessier i went and looked at his twitter feed on 4th of october 2021 he says amazing news facebook whatsapp and instagram are down for four hours." By far, the most protective, globally significant event for people's mental health and social relations since November 2016 to some extent <laughs> uh, just yeah, so Samuel Bessier, like most people coming at it, come from a perspective where they've already decided it's a bad thing. Um, Samuel Vessier thinks that people should talk to each other face to face and I don't know shake hands or something there's a form of human connection which is good and necessary and that the internet is a bad and unnecessary form of human connection and his assertions take place from there so uh let me just catch up with your messages uh yeah i mean toby's saying i agree that for an adolescent the smartphone's great i think late night tv or gaming for pre adolescents is perhaps more problematic just the tiredness wiredness thing well as we'll see when we get to um discussions about TV watching in the 1950s and 60s in the United States, where television had penetrated you know, almost 100 percent of homes in a way it hadn't in the United Kingdom. That same thing, the tired child syndrome, um, very much associated with, with television in that period, too. I love the way we stop worrying about television altogether because kids have kind of stopped watching television. If you, if you talk to students in your form or students in your classes who are teenagers, they just don't watch TV. They just gaze at you blankly. Watching television and being addicted to long-form drama is kind of a way to show you're a boomer or a Gen Xer. You're a millennial. Guilty, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, this is uh, Sebastian, who's with me now. is a 30-year-old who spends most of his time watching uh, Inland Waterway documentaries. Amongst other things. I I, I hardly (laughs) think you can be classified as a general voice of the millennial England. So what is the current trend? What, what are people generally saying about the relationship between correlation and causation with depression, anxiety, young people and smartphones? Where is the general science right now? Well, luckily for us, um, the same day that the Atlantic published their Instagram and girls piece, um, a piece was published um, called Rather Boringly, if you read us the boring
2: title, Anxiety sensitivity mediates relations between anxiety, but not depression, and problematic smartphone use severity, adjusting for age and sex in Chinese adolescents early in the COVID-19 pandemic.
1: (laughs) Gripping, gripping stuff, I'm sure you can imagine. But the paragraph I'm picking out here is the paragraph that tells us where all the science is. Um, The phrase we're using here is problematic uh, screen use, PSU. So current evidence suggests that psychopathology drives problematic screen use as a method of coping or self-regulation rather than the reverse. And they list the studies. Um, the idea also reflects work describing problematic Internet use as a compensatory mechanism. And one might conceptualize overuse of the smartphone as a mobile form of problematic inter- Internet use. Thus, the smartphone and subsequent problematic screen use may help individuals experience positive emotion or avoid negative emotion combating aspects of well-established risk factor like depression and anxiety. And that is a new wrinkle, isn't it? So it's not just kids aren't more depressed because they're using smartphones more, kids are using smartphones more because they're more depressed, but also the idea that actually it's not necessarily negative. Right. So for there there are studies, and again they rely on self-reporting that show that, you know, when they do mood state, general social well-being type questions, and then they ask about internet usage, and then they ask kids to say how they feel it helps or hinders them. Um it's not particularly there's not a particularly huge gap between depressed young people saying that the smartphone makes it worse versus depressed young people saying that the smartphone makes it better, right? So you might be driven to increased problematic amounts of screen time, but it can be actually having a positive effect, which is where I'd say the example of my kid would come in. So what is a moral panic? I've been using that phrase right the way along. And it's a it, it was first kind of established in Cohen's study of um, youthful hooliganism in post-war britain think brighton rock and mods and rockers and those kinds of things uh moral panic is is now a key word in social scientific studies of crime deviance and control so the basic parts here it sort of refers to episodes moments of social anxiety uh, where folk devils moral outlaws Visible reminders of what we should not be are blamed for societal malaise uh, within our lifetimes, and in the lifetime of people like Sebastian or uh, Matt Ben David, some of those folk devils were moral outlaws. Were the happy slapping craze? Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Happy slappers, Asbos, uh, the spectre of you know Sam Elliott Asbo teacher wandering around the barren estates of coventry happy he's who runs the one you
2: know no he does not all right no. <laughs> that's
1: someone else but but for a good long time you know i would look at the headlines from britain and they would be full of these uh, these folk devils feral children slapping each other in the face while wearing burberry hats that had completely seized the public imagination and also <laughs> the important thing here is they're being blamed for societal malaise so it's like society's gone to hell in a handbasket and we can see it because of Samuel Eliot slapping a child in a in a disused factory in, in Coventry kind of thing. Right. So the term captures how right-thinking actors, right thinking actors. So the person having the moral panic, the society engaged in the moral panic, they are right thinking people um, and they turn deviant outside outsiders into potent sources of anxious indignation. They're all absolutely bound up in horror about happy slappers. Aspo children, uh, children who listen to drill music, um, you know, like pick a moral panic, any moral panic, they come up all the time because they're such a reliable source of news. And that's the kind of second part of Cohen's definition of moral panic, is that they're a sort of top-down media phenomenon. So newspapers push them, The Daily Mail loves a good moral panic, loves a folk devil. At the moment, the woke are everyone's favourite folk devil. There's a little bit of that in our news segment about gender neutral toilets. Very reliable way. When we talk about 18 year old men sharing toilets with 11 year old girls, it was framed. Um, There's there's your, your folk devils right there is these deviant 18 year old men who are roaming the streets anxious to prey upon our innocent 11 year olds. And that is associated with cultural degeneracy and collapse of values and everyone's hair is on fire and and post has destroyed us all and you know those are our current uh folk devils so what's interesting about social media is that it has changed the dynamic of moral panics completely because it's no longer we're no longer people who are broadcast at or published that we're now people who engage in making the news and um, by circulating it by generating our own news um, and putting that around on social media. So social media users reproduce and fuel moral panics themselves, including social media driven moral panics about social media, which is like, I am on social media talking about how social media is destroying the planet is sort of a trope of our times, right? So <laughs> exactly. Vézier logging on to tweet about how we should all log off and not tweet. All right, Sam. <laughs> So, uh, and that's where a lot of people now are looking at social media as an object of anxiety, I do want to use your name name every time met Matt Ben David because the first time I met you I mispronounced the last two syllables and I know that happens a lot so I'm just showing off at this point that's all Um. so what. what what people are looking at with social media as an object of anxiety <laughs> is that changing, I'll just quote this, changing communicative and informational conditions frequently incite moral restiveness, <laughs> right? When stuff changes, we as a culture, any culture gets very antsy and angsty. Um, I'm gonna have Sebastian read you this lovely list of former moral panics, so from
2: there, please. Like prior episodes involving dangerous media including penny dreadfuls, pinball machines, comic books and video nasties, youth are ambivalently constructed as threatened and threatening while anxieties have surfaced around vulnerability stemming from uh, online predators, sexting, cyberbullying and exposure to violent and pornographic content, youth are also positioned as undisciplined and pathological they are them the <laughs> with social media branded a leading culprit. <laughs> Alongside being blamed for moral failings, um, obesity, addiction, <laughs> disengagement, cultural <laughs> vacuity, oh. <laughs> says, um, multimedia platforms have been linked to violent criminality. There's just nothing
1: social media platforms can do about it. <laughs> I
2: yeah. thought I was a technophobe. <laughs> Whether in relation to video game violence, the possibility of obtaining information about weaponry and prior uh, incidents or the promise of celebrity immortality offered through documenting (laughs) their grievances and attacks. Digital media have been maligned for encouraging school shootings and associated (laughs) massacres, associated (laughs) massacres. Associated, yeah. (laughs) So uh, further, during the 2011 uh, England riots, journalists and politicians referenced Blackberry and Twitter mobs claiming teenage gangs employed digital communications to evade authorities publicize lawlessness and coordinate antisocial behavior. So
1: essentially there, there's just literally nothing that our smartphones can't do. <laughs> um, I love the idea there and that I think comes through in the uh, the 11 year old girls versus 18 year old men framing of the toilets issue in, in Scotland, that children are both simultaneously predators and prey in this particular moral panic we find ourselves in. We're both worried that they are um, That they are extremely exceptionally vulnerable to to the world of predators and pornography and everything but also that they are purveyors of the same thing they are both violent and they are people consumed with violence we can't decide how we feel about children they're a shifting moral signifier they're either yeah but it often comes down to girls fear about girls specifically um april 14th 2020 uh rich haridi uh publishes as well as an article Uh, publishes this article concern over kids screen time is a modern day moral panic a new study has concluded that young people today rate similarly on interpersonal skills compared to those who grew up in the 90s they're looking at people like you sebastian you're the the last generation that didn't that wasn't i-gen right because you're born in what 91 rather than 95. the research suggests smartphones screen time and social media have not negatively affected kids' social skills, and modern concerns over the impact of screen time recalls past moral panics over the effect of new technology on children. Ultimately, the researchers found no difference in social skills between the 1998 and 2010 cohorts. From kindergarten to fifth grade, both cohorts displayed similar development. The only noticeably different data point, Downey notes, was a slight decrease in social skills for children with very frequent use of online gaming and social media and then Downey points out even that was a pretty small effect overall we found very little evidence that time spent on screens was hurting social skills for most children i'm sure what downey would say if i asked him over a pint is that the, the particular children who are using gaming problematically would always have been problematic children it's not that the gaming somehow transformed them from this werewolf style from, my child was well-behaved. And then I gave them wee Sports and and now they can't stop beating their sister and running up and down the room, right? Uh, Very much the same as um, the autism, the absolutely misrepresented studies around vaccines and autism in the 90s, which again predicated on this idea that there was this innocent, perfect child who was injected with the MMR vaccine And after that was transformed into a howling werewolf, Um, huge moral panic surrounding those. And we see that now absolutely happening um, in online discourse surrounding Bill Gates and and Pfizer and um, Fauci, all of that it follows a very specific pattern. Once you see the folk devils moral panic model, it's very hard not to see it everywhere and not to just roll your eyes endlessly. And yet, Government is making policies, Department for Education is making policies about smartphones right now. There's a lot of discussion around smartphones and how potentially they are the reason why all children, I don't know, are failing, aren't reading. There's The the idea that children don't read smartphones or that kids these days read less is very beautifully investigated in um, an article I'll link to after this by uh, Protzko and Schooler. great names, John Protzko and Jonathan Schooler. Who are here to school you with the information? So you know we all we all know that for the last two thousand six hundred years we've got evidence of people saying kids these days are worse than they used to be. Kids these days don't read. Kids these days don't respect their elders. Kids these days, you know, these days, these days <laughs> if you say you're a kid, <laughs> they throw you in jail. <laughs> what these days? <laughs> they look you up these days just for saying you're a teenager. So what they did was um, they took three propositions. Kids these days read less, children are less intelligent than they used to be, and children don't respect their elders. And uh, they got an awful lot of people to to you know respond to whether they believe that was extremely true or not true at all. And at the same time, they asked the respondents to um, a series of questions that basically classified them in a variety of ways. Number one, how did they rate on a standardized intelligence test? The respondents, you know, the grown-ups about the kids. Number two, how much do they read? What are your reading patterns? What do you recall about reading when you were a kid? What's your history of reading? And number three, um, those kind of personality questions that that work out if you are an authoritarian type, you know, if you believe very strongly in law and order, that you think in hierarchy, all those things. Unsurprisingly, it turns out that if you read a lot, if you're an older adult who reads a lot. You are much more likely to think that kids these days don't read at all and it's not because kids these these days don't read at all it's because kids those days didn't read either essentially (laughs) nothing has changed it's not based on any qualitative or quantitative analysis it's just that you the person who reads a lot are back reading your own self onto your perception of what was going on. So like, you know, I spent all of 1980 reading three or four books a day. If I were to start thinking that that's what all my peers did, or if that kind of bias was shaping the way I I thought the rest of my peers were behaving, then obviously kids these days read way less than that. Same thing with intelligence. People who scored more highly on the intelligence testing were much more likely to think that kids these days were less intelligent. But again, all of these depended on you reading your own preferences and biases back onto an imaginary past and then judging an equally sort of imaginary impressionistic presence on it what i'm saying here is that there's no data but the strongest correlation between the idea that kids these days are going to hell don't listen to their elders don't read books do everything wrong is if you yourself are drawn to strong systems of authority and are highly literate and did well in the education system so you're really coming from an impossibly biased position and and just looking for confirmation of your own biases. Hashtag just saying. Right. Uh, let's just see. Yeah. Blackberry mobs. Matt's talking about. Yeah, that was scary. I mean, the problem with a moral panic is it's all sort of funny once it's finished. But at the time, it has devastating results for people. So as I'm sure you'll all recall from um, from the riots in was it 2011? Yeah, from the 2011 riots, the the alleged Blackberry mobs, the um the use of Facebook to incite those Blackberry mobs resulted in draconian sentencing for an awful lot of young people who had merely, you know, they might have made a joke about it, they might have put up a half-assed message that no one looked at and everyone told them they're an idiot, but because panic and anxiety was so great surrounding it, they ended up with two or three year sentences. Right. Um, so, yes, our moral panics is not just that we might be unknowingly taking Sasha's smartphone away. We might be throwing Sasha in prison for two years because we're engaged in a moral panic about it. Um, Downey talking about that kids these days syndrome says there's a tendency for every generation at my age to start having concerns about the younger generation. It's an old story the introduction of telephones automobiles and radio all led to moral panic among adults at the time because the technology allowed children to enjoy more autonomy fears over screen-based technology likely represent the most recent panic in response to technological change so just as in like 1962 i've got this lovely raft of articles that i won't bore you with about the dangers of cars and how we should control what's going on in cars and how our teenage girls are going to get impregnated in cars and our teenage boys are going to drive to knife fights in cars. It's because they have the argument here is because they have control over their own bodies and where they are in space and time. And that's what's causing the anxiety the the lack of parental surveillance, the lack of parental control. Same thing with information and with digital spaces. And there's a lot of a lot of um, extreme anxiety that again gets platformed in the Atlantic surrounding the idea of rapid gender dysphoria which is not a scientific concept but it's the idea among a lot of parents who are hostile to transgender issues that their children go online and two weeks later come to them and say i, I want to transition to a new gender and that that's been caused by social media um, so that that's a particular moral panic and folk devil that we have going on at the moment very much so in this country um, it's a huge one in britain right now yeah Humanity has been lodging the same complaints against kids these days for at least 2,600 years, Protzko said late last year. So I thought what would be fun um, would be to look at the previous moral panics. Um, So return of the techno moral panic, lovely article from the New York Times that I'll link, from 2017 took me back to one that happened when I was 24. Now we had two things happening at the same time, both of which were profoundly influential in, in the way Um, Americans and the wider Atlantic talk about children and um, technology. One of them was, I can't remember the year it was published, I think it might have been as early as 93. And it was the big cover study on time that talked about neurological development in babies. So it's the the first time we have burst into the public conscious. The idea that um, children's brains are full of developing neurons and that after a certain point, those start getting pruned. And in order for your child to be a successful, barely functional human being, you need to put as much input in in those first two years, after which your child is hopelessly ruined. And if you haven't done it right, you haven't done it right. So by the time I had my child in 2004, there was (laughs) baby brain development activity was an enormous industry, all based on very cold neuroscience and fundamentally built around anxiety later analysts said and commented at the time around the changing role of mothers, around women in the workplace and around this idea of feral children. But I'm gonna um, have Sebastian read us uh, the second moral panic that happened simultaneously, which was also Time Magazine
2: 1995. <clears throat> the uh, 3rd of July, 1995 cover of Time Magazine Featured below, uh, featured below the glowing f- uh, face of an awe-struck child, a blaring, bold type neologism that needed no explanation: cyberporn. Cyberporn. <laughs> <laughs> a new study shows how pervasive and wild it really is. Read the cover line: Can we protect our kids and free speech? The story cited um, a new study that made uh, eye-catching claims that nearly a million pornographic files were available through online bulletin board services, that 83.5% of images stored there, available to anyone, including minors, were pornographic. Now, the story was a sensation, inspiring a Nightline feature and drawing the attention of politicians. The full text of the Time article was entered into the congressional record by Senator <laughs> Chuck Grassley. That's a lovely name, isn't it? Oh, he's,
1: he's, he's got an amazing Twitter presence, by the way. He's like crazy old grandpa on Twitter.
2: Yeah. Uh, who urged his colleagues to act to help parents who are under assault in this day and age, these days. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <clears throat> With strong bipartisan support, Congress soon passed the Communications Decency Act Uh as part of the Telecommunications Act of 1996, which broadly criminalised the transmission of indecent and obscene materials to underage internet users. Now, today the article has been disavowed by its writer, uh, the veteran tech journalist Philip Elmer DeWitt, uh, as the worst of his career by far. I'm
1: gonna, I wanna read the next bit. So the undergraduate engineering student who conducted the study, Marty Rim, literally changed his name and went into hiding after his work was exposed by critics as profoundly flawed. It was perhaps the prototypical mainstream moral panic about the internet. So two things happen simultaneously. We get this completely hyperinflated, methodologically unsound, frankly nonsensical claim um made up with lots of statistics very scary statistics about pornographic material being cyber porned at our children in 95 just as the you know the web is really becoming a feature of people's lives and at the same time we have this moral panic i'm going to call it a moral panic surrounding children's neurological development that if we don't raise them right their brains will be hopelessly pruned and reshaped and also that if we expose them to the wrong things all their little neurons will turn into crazy porn addicted pleasure-seeking things so concern about children concern about mothers concerns about <clears throat> parents concerns about the purity of culture concerns about social malaise all of that tied up there so that's kind of the modernity that that most teachers were born into um the one that the older amongst us toby who's listening and uh, i were born into is the anxiety surrounding television so i'm going to take us back to 1950 um greenville mississippi reporting uh, too much television and not enough sleep is becoming a schoolroom problem according to president beautifully named lucius a whipple <laughs> of the rhode island college of education okay great great <laughs> neologics coming up Telly snoozing, he calls it, when video weary children fall asleep in class. Telly snoozing, people. Tell me, we've all heard that about kids in class. We have all said that there are kids in class who are up all night playing Call of Duty, or that this kid must be unmotivated because they've probably been up all night playing Call of Duty. I mean, that's that's a moral panic from 2009, maybe. But um, yeah, telly snoozing. I say we bring back telly snoozing also in 1950 uh <laughs> this one being reported in indiana but it's it's reported across the nation uh, nurse warns parents of too much tv believing that there is su- an overindulgence among homeward children in their television entertainment a nurse here is advised parents to use discretion in the time permitted children before the television um what does she say here she says i have no objection to television but i do believe Too much of it is injurious to children. In some instances, children have been sent home due to the fact that their eyes have a burning sensation or because they have headaches. Others are frequently absent because they're too sleepy to be awakened following a late hour of television. Um, The invention of imaginary maladies associated with new technology is a really fun thing. So here we've got television eyes. You may well have grown up being told you will have square eyes if you keep watching the television. Uh, my granddad was very anxious if I ever read with low lights because I'd end up needing glasses. But you know that's that's an acceptable form of, of syndrome if it's books. Uh, there's a, an article I've not included here but I found from The Lancet that is heavily reported on in the States in the 50s. <laughs> they, the Lancet's very concerned about all these terrible physical syndromes that will happen from people watching television. Um, thrombosis of the lower legs from sitting, uh, something they make up which is apparently when you've eaten and you have a big build up of gas beneath your lungs and it's compressed because you're sitting watching television um, and it can cause you to have a heart attack people, it really can. So it's very important that you get up and walk around the room every 20 minutes, apparently, allegedly. So, let's have a look at the next one I've got here. We have skip forward to 1962 um, because because this is fun. Let's see, Oh, I know why I've got this one, because it's about blaming the parents. There is no question that but the parents must accept the blame and should, if they are conscientious, do something about the matter. Basically, they need to give their children more time and attention. They need to take greater pains to see that other experiences and activities are substituted for hours now spent watching TV. We're anxious about the parents, um, as well as being anxious about the children when they say parents they don't mean dads do they no they mean mums an enormous amount of this is about the changing role of women especially middle-class women in the workplace and uh what will happen in i know how sebastian read this one and what will happen if they um, keep on watching too much tv remember we're in the too much tv phase of the moral panic about television and uh this one's a letter to dr joyce brothers An Anxious Parent, 1965, TV,
2: and the Tired Child Syndrome. Go ahead, Sebastian. Dear Dr. Brothers, our child, 10 years old, has become nervous, listless, and irritable. Do you think too much television watching could be the cause? Dear HS, the Tired tired Child Syndrome, a condition of anxiety, nervousness, Fatigue, lack of appetite and nausea is caused by too much television viewing. The report given by a team of Air Force um, paediatricians before the American Academy of Paediatrics said that the problem is not with the televised violence, nor with other children alone. The problem is emotional <laughs> reliance on TV, no matter what the content of the program all the viewers age.
1: Yeah, I, I just love it that the um, the Air Force has got involved. <laughs> the, threat, the threat to Cold War America's young people is so great that the Air Force has gone to talk to paediatricians about tired child syndrome. So I don't remember fatigue loss of appetite and nausea caused by washing brain chill, but maybe I just wasn't doing it properly. Uh, we shall see. Uh, 1965 as well. And again, if we're looking at how parents are being morally panicked about as well as children. This one supervised TOTS television viewing. Top tip everyone. When children are referred to as TOTS in a headline, you're always in the middle of a moral panic. Always. Tot is one of those words that no one uses in real life. They only use you know, anxious tot, falls from smartphone, balcony, failure, parent, happy slap, like, yeah. Um, there's a new expression used for too much television viewing called tired child syndrome. The definition of a syndrome is, whatever, boring. Uh, I distinctly remember, says uh, Isabel Buckley, just after the advent of television, wondering what had happened to the children after summer vacation naturally disciplined, slackened somewhat during the hot summer days, but not to the extent that was apparent in the boisterous behaviour of the students. To my surprise, the answer was the presence of a new monster in the home. So we just had the American Air Force telling the American Academy of Pediatrics that it caused listlessness and anxiety. But here apparently also causes boisterousness and monstrosity. Which is it, moral panickers? Does television make children hyperactive or does television make children into passive consumers and um, basically it just depends on how we're feeling at the time it's just terribly bad and we need to shout about it um, it's vitally necessary that children and young people should not have emotional reliance on television when i was researching this i did not expect that the emotional component of the smartphone discussion would also be there with the television um, but here as as dr joyce brothers is just saying They're saying children are emotionally dependent. So we've got anxiety about maternity. We've got anxiety about changing women's roles in the workforce. We've got your generic kids these days syndrome going on. We've got a new technology, which just always prompts everyone to get deeply concerned about the silliest things in the world. But we also have this idea of emotional displacement. The kids, kids these days, no longer love us and their friends. They love the hideous new object that has come into their home, whether it's a smartphone, whether it's a television, they're now emotionally reliant on it. Um, and you can always roll out a psychiatrist to say anything, anything at all during your panic. They've got books to sell too. Here's New York psychiatrist, Dr. J.A.M. Merleau, who has this to say, television fascination is a real addiction. That is to say, television can become a habit forming device, the influence of which cannot be stopped without active therapeutic interference. Um, so and that's when we start getting the language of addiction. And as we'll see in 1990, uh, when I was 18, that becomes enormously, children are addicted to television. It's amazing, isn't it? Because now children are not addicted to television at all and you can't get them to sit down and watch it for five bloody minutes, quite frankly. Uh, but again, what are we really anxious about here? We're anxious about the family, about parenting and specifically mothers not doing things properly. It's undesirable mothers. It's never us. It's never me that's letting my kid watch too much television. P.S. It was. It's never me letting my kids spend too much time on the screen, which it absolutely was. Um, it is it's other parents, lesser parents, poorer parents, working class parents. you know. Not good, solid, white, middle-class parents, they know how to use screen time. Or their children can have screen time and not be deleterously affected. It's the poor, and their use of these magical new technologies always is always the poor. So this article, the same Isabel Buckley one from 65, says, I have watched the children of two families. All right, Isabel. don't know why you're stalking these <laughs> children, but there you go. One family sees television all week long. So though the children are only seven and five, there is much chatter of violence and guns. The other family sees their television only, ac- I like, sees their television, <laughs> <laughs> no watches. they only see it occasionally. <laughs> oh my God, look, there's the television, <laughs> bye again. Sees their television only occasionally and their programs are supervised. It is apparent that there is much less sophistication in other words these children live in a child's world the loss of innocence to go back to our 11 year olds in gender neutral toilets the loss of innocence um and to go back to our moral panic from 95 about cyber porn children are always innocent and subject to extreme corruption by evil forces but also children are are, are demons who are too violent those two things exist simultaneously um, yeah, the, the, the urge to have parents like constantly involved, like quite frankly, when I put blues clues on for my kid, I didn't want to watch it too. Like you do blues clues on your own. Got some stuff from Britain. Now obviously we don't have the same kind of moral panic about television in Britain because people don't really have televisions in Britain in the same degree. Obviously we're getting them, but um, when did I first see color television? Uh, I'm really old. Yeah, I first saw colour TV when my mother was doing an Avon round and we went to someone's house and there was a colour TV there and I can still remember the shock of modernity in seeing Hamble and Humpty and the other characters from whatever that show was called uh, in colour for the first time.
2: We well, see my dad remembers the two channels in the 60s um, but his father lived in California at the time and they were staggered when he came back with a TV Ads and they couldn't believe how many channels and everything there was to watch. I mean, you could only watch it about two hours a day over here. Yeah,
1: it was on, it's on for two hours in the morning for children, and then two hours in the afternoon. And otherwise, you had to just watch Open University programs about biological diseases or something. If you were lucky, if you were lucky, Sebastian, back in my day,
2: <laughs> your mother used to put on for you, wasn't that,
1: it? <laughs> that's that's why we read all the time and were better than the youth of today. Obviously, we must have been. Um, This one is about, there was a huge controversy about Sesame Street being broadcast in Britain, and in the end it wasn't, Um, but it caused, uh, a it kind of prompted a report on television and the preschool child, and it's all going to sound very familiar to the smartphone discussion now, to the more anxious and overwrought smartphone discussions which claim that kids these days, their parents don't play with them, kids these days um, are left alone with devices while their parents are on devices and some you know new hellscape that is palpably different from any other form of culture we've ever had. Um, so this particular is Gwen Dunns study television and the preschool child uh, just looked at the BBC, looked at ITV, looked at the quality of programs, um, discussed it with teachers and parents and stuff. And children, children copy their parents' attitude to television. If parents use it as a means of escape, as mothers isolated in arid housing estates may do, then their children do the same. Even so, they do learn something from what they see, although without the benefit of adult support, it may be misunderstood or half understood. It's a sad experience to read the conversations with children, children bursting to tell what they've seen, but without the words, children who have not seen in real life the quite ordinary things shown on the screen, children who cannot make their own fun or their own models. Right? So, this is, what, 1976, something like that, 73? Kids these days can't play anymore. Kids these days, their parents don't show them what to do. Kids these days, their parents don't supervise their watching. Kids these days. Now, it's possible, uh, you know, counter counterfactual fans, that perhaps the mid-century um, introduction of the television in people's homes is just one long incursion of screen time that is continuous from the appearance of television to the appearance of cell phones mobile phones and that therefore rather than um, me winning you over with my argument that um this is just a replication of previous moral panics that a lot of us lived through at the time and will live through new ones again it's possible there's something genuinely new in the world that the kind of introduction of of electronic screens into people's lives changed us forever it's not though is it no (laughs) (laughs) That's nonsense. I refuse to accept that for a minute. Uh, (laughs) But in terms of um, the kind of people who despise television, my mother told me a story yesterday. My mum was born in 1948. Her father, highly literate man, anxious about the introduction of television. They lived in New Jersey. In, um, so it's the 50s, it's New Jersey. It's you know the golden age of American television. Of course, TV these days is worse than ever. TV these days is not as good as it used to be. So it's I Love Lucy and, and all those sorts of things. And uh, But he was very anxious about this, the effect of television time on them because, of course, all the papers were full of this tired all the time, You know, children with goggling eyes and anxiety and malaise who've been turned into zombies. So they were allowed to to watch television for exactly as long as they had read that day. So if you wanted to watch an hour of television, you had to do an hour of reading. Um, It's interesting the way we discuss still screen time, television time, cell phones as passive and reading as active. Um, Yeah. Anyway, that's that's the subject for another day. So um, her brother, my mum's brother, hated reading, so hated it and vowed never to read a book in his life once he grew up. But here in 1980, being reported in The Guardian um, is, is a particularly extreme version of that. Uh, Dr. James Holmes was one of the increasing number of parents in America worried about the damaging effect of too much television on their children. Now he believes he has found an ingenious cure for the TV junkies. We've got anxiety about drug addiction and drug use in the 60s being transported throughout the 70s directly into the way we talk about television. When his two youngsters, Elizabeth and Mark, 12 and eight, want to watch a soap opera or a violent detective series, they have to pedal for their pleasure on a specially adapted bicycle in order to get the little screen to come to life. I think that that might be a Black Mirror episode, right?
2: A miserable man. (laughs)
1: So for an hour of pedaling, they get an hour of viewing from what the doctor calls his peddler program exerciser. Ah, he and his wife, Lynn, who are monsters, also use it, but for educational programs and news. Right, they don't watch television. I'd have a
2: heart attack getting through one of my long-form dramas, <laughs> wouldn't I, <laughs>
1: <laughs> where, a, where your Gris, Griff Reese jones walks along waterways, talking quietly, yeah, you'd be pedaling. Uh, 83, United Kingdom. Um, I kind of love this Gallup polling. 84% of parents thought their children watched too much television. Right? So that's 84% of parents, 19 hours a week on average, and more than a third of the children had a television set in their bedrooms. So the phenomenon here is this self-hating, I'm a bad parent sort of thing. So 84% say their children are watching too much television, but they gave their children the televisions and put them in their bedrooms. So we simultaneously have an extension of screens, but also self-flagellation around screens, or more likely knowing that they're supposed to say it's too much television when they're interviewed because we all know what the show researchers want us to say about television and cell phone use. They want us to feel bad about it. They want us to say we'd we'd have our children ride on bicycles until they've lost all their body fat. Um, but actually, it's highly likely most of those people didn't feel bad at all uh, August 1990 for m- one of my favorite moral panics. I was 18. I was working as a video clerk clerk in an, my little market town in Buckinghamshire and three a thousand miles away in Boston, Massachusetts. The American Psychological Association was announcing a terrifying new phenomenon, an epidemic. And it was television addiction now we've already seen that the language of junkie and addicts featured in discussions of television but here we have um the american psychological association sort of officially codifying it and talking about it in that language and saying no it's real um so i've got some outrage for some reason the tampa bay times is is the subject of an enormous number of letters to the editor on it um and this one's an article This letter to the editor, written by a very verbose person who now would just like threaten to kill you below the line comments or something. But yeah, back in the day you had to write letters to
2: the editor. Can you uh, read us this bit please? The development also shows something about another social trend, the increasing addiction to television. TV has become our chief source of news and entertainment. Voting behavior is probably influenced more by television than Mm -hmm. any other force. Our standards of right and wrong come increasingly from television schools fight a losing battle <laughs> this form of addiction may have long-term consequences quite as serious as addiction to various chemical substances
1: and then from also the tampa bay times another letter august 1990 what we must do as teachers parents and family members is pester cajole entreat through fits and insist that our students children and relatives give up this nasty addiction Pick a thing that we are saying is happening today, political polarisation, voting habits, habits, people getting their opinions from non-trusted sources of information. Um, So we've shifted from hard copy newspapers to television news broadcast. And then when we shift to internet circulated and printed news media, then everyone's hair will really be on fire. But it's exactly the same discussion all the time. What you hear in the States is this claim that back back in the olden days, People did political debate properly, and they always talk about the Lincoln-Douglas debates um, from Lincoln's first presidential campaign, where they, I don't know, travel from town to town talking for four hours at a time about debate. No one was ever like that. Just because they did that doesn't mean political discourse was was good and proper and not prone to lies and nonsense. Believe me, I study, um, when I'm being an academic, I study 19th century newsprint. They do viral made up news. They just do it more slowly. They literally what happens is um, the copy editor that you get a copy of a newspaper and the the newspapers will pass free through the press, literally clip out the story and reproduce it in your newspaper. So you can track stories going viral across the United States and then crossing the Atlantic and doing it that way. As soon as we get um, the telegram and telegraph machines, then suddenly from the mid 19th century, they can go viral very quickly. But it's still not just quite as instantaneous but the same thing there's there is nothing new about any of this new media um it's time to kick our addiction to television i uh there's some stuff here that i was particularly fond of because it sounded very much like um we must provide them with pleasing exciting rewarding alternatives to television that will enhance self-esteem promote communication and encourage mental engagement So again, same concerns, communication skills, which we saw Simon Watts' face being concerned about, uh, connection, emotional reliance, and also the role of teachers in in writing Jeremiah ads to parents about where they're going wrong. (laughs) Another letter to the editor. I wanted to bring to your attention an addiction that is sweeping this country in epidemic proportions. Tragically, the government sanctions this serious addiction called television. Dude wrote this in 2009. In 2009, like, you were late. He missed the boat. Oh, no. <laughs> Very late to the television addiction party. I was
2: whinging about social media by then.
1: <laughs> exactly.
2: <laughs> uh, oh, this was lovely.
1: Association of Head Teachers from 2006, which I was in a. I was in the states at the time, but I had a two-year-old. And uh, so, who it was said in year this? 10. Yeah, well, that well, you were the person they were talking about. So, Mick Brooks of the National Association of Head Teachers stood up at the conference and in a speech that got an enormous amount of press said
2: what well, would you like to read it go ahead uh, children are suffering loving neglect because parents fail to set boundaries a teacher's leader said this week basically we're too soft we can't bear to see our children upset can't bear for them not to like us We give into tantrums and bribe our way out of bother we'd rather be their friends than their parents oh what Wimps we are. <laughs> the result, says Mick Brooks of the National Association of Head Teachers, is that children, now even the nice posh middle class children, come to school incapable of learning. <laughs>
1: I love that. Okay, <laughs> so so it used to be just poor children we were worried about, poor children who are neglected by working mothers, latchkey generation, da 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 da. Now it's reached the middle classes people, when nice middle class children are also not work, not functional, they're broken they've been destroyed again by terrible parenting. And when they say terrible parenting, again, they never mean fathers, they mean mothers. I think it's time for the nation's mothers to tell people to stop telling us what to do with our children and how kids these days, because of us, are monsters of entitlement. And one thing I would say to Mick Brooks in 2006, shouting at a man who said this 17, 17 years ago? No, look at my maths working out. 15. 15 years ago, (laughs) is that, The nice posh middle-class children phenomenon where their parents talk to them instead of ordering them around, goes hand in hand with what we were talking about way back at the beginning of the show about more articulate discussion within families about mental health and stuff. So just, yeah, we treat our children like humans. Anyway, meanwhile, Children's Laureate Award winning author Jacqueline Wilson has launched a campaign to get parents reading bedtime stories to their children again, instead of abandoning them alone to their story tapes or TVs. She would say that. Of course she says that. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) All right. Hashtag big Jacqueline Wilson pushing her books. (laughs) Big Jacqueline. It's the same thing every time, and it's always about parenting. It's lensed as concern about children, but it's about how we are doing it right. And that somehow there was a time when it wasn't done that way. Reading bedtime stories to their children, again, the assumption there is that it used to be done in the past. Um, now, I've got more I could tell you about television and, and the anxieties surrounding it, but it's all the same story every time. There's all the same effects every time. There's always brand new physical effects at texter's thumb. You may remember people being anxious about texting thumb, do you remember? Yeah. <laughs> Did you ever develop texting thumbs first? In- no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, people, I read one, a great one about people going blind temporarily from um, reading their smartphones on, on in the pillow. With one eye closed?
2: Sometimes I was too frightened of it happening. I kept a close eye for years.
1: (laughs) Also, brain tumours. Um, My my ex husband used to chain smoke while while never holding his phone to his head in case he got cancer. I'd be like, people are are immune to logic when it comes to a good moral panic. Great book that the uh, English language A level blog, Twitter account suggested to me that I'd not come across. Dennis Barron's book, A Better Pencil, Readers, Writers and the Digital Revolution, 2009. Right? This is a review from 2009 and I'm just gonna read the beginning of it. What he looks at here is um, the history of extreme anxiety and moral Jeremiahs, and the sky is falling down and kids these days are broken, associated with every form of new communication technology. But when he says new communication technology, he starts from writing literally writing things down. So let's I'll just read from this review. He begins his splendid history of these debates with the well-known tale from Plato's Phaedrus about the dangers of the written word. The Egyptian god Theus Theoth boasts to King Farmus about how the invention of writing will improve the wisdom and memory of the masses. And the king says the discoverer of an art is not the best judge of the good and harm which will accrue to those who practice it. So like the Silicon Valley, I've put Satan in a in a phone thing, the, the king's saying, you don't know what you've done, mate. You're terrifying God who's created a magical smartphone technology, except it's just, you know, writing on bits of bits. <laughs> So the king says, people, it passes judgment on writing's impact on society, saying that he fears that people will receive a quantity of information without proper instruction, and in consequence, be thought very knowledgeable when they are, for the most part, quite ignorant. <laughs> as, as Baron points out, we only remember the warning because it was written down, ironically. But you'll notice there that writing itself, which now is considered that that is the subject of of our enormous kids these days, panics, kids kids in those days used to read. Kids these days, I
2: don't know. Lose the ability to write.
1: Yeah, they, they can't read, they can't write. They're just stumbling in a wasteland of, of cell phone thumbs and, and, and square eyes. Um their reading is being seen as a passive technology. right? When the words are written down, you just absorb them. Whereas when the words are orally delivered, when you have to have a dialogic discussion about them, then they have meaning. Mere reading is a terrifying new technology because it will allow people to sort of like meaninglessly scoop up facts and reproduce them instead of actually thinking. Which makes you think, oh, I don't know where I'm going with that one. Um, <laughs> So he points out, uh, yeah, just a variety of things, the printing press, the telegraph, telephones, typewriters, pocket calculators, personal computers, word processors, web pages, blogs, social networking sites, blah, 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 identifies the usual pattern. And that is we greet each new technology with deep distrust, dire warnings, and then we adapt to the new realities. And that's what we do as humans, right? That's kind of what this reviewer now says. Um, as a species, we have an unparalleled ability to learn new ways of doing things. We don't always like technological change and often we deeply resent or fear it. But in the end, we learn to live with it and eventually embrace it. So final thing I'm going to talk to you about is um, is attention. So things that get said about smartphones and, and screen time and children, is we've got the dangers of you know, predators coming for them. As we can see, that's been consistent across you know, every form of, of new technology. Worry about children being able to you know, control themselves in space and time means predators having access to them. Um, it, that's, that's a standard trope that we see all the time. We've also got um, the idea that it's passive reception of information rather than the active, manly, masculine process of reading, whatever reading is supposed to be, rather than just passively receiving words. But that, that was said about television, that, that was said about writing itself. When, uh, when Plato was having people do chats about writing. Uh, the other one we have is attention spans. So the idea that children won't read because their shiny objects give them too much instant gratification and that our, our attention spans have decreased not just children's but adults too that this is a catastrophic thing and what you'll see over and over and over again is the idea that we now have attention spans shorter than those of goldfish um, it's nonsense right so if the dangers of smartphones aren't necessarily depression or child predation or any of those things surely they're associated with our famously decreased attention spans is it true that we all have shorter ascension spans than goldfish right it is a total myth and it just refuses to die every single part of it is nonsense the way it talks about attention span is nonsense the way it talks about attention is nonsense where the data comes from is nonsense and also it's horribly maligning of poor goldfish who do not have eight-second memories or attention spans at all so if you search myth attention span goldfish you will see someone publishing an article roughly every two months for the last 10 years saying actually that's not true actually that's not true actually that's not true and that kind of amps up in 20, 2013 when there's this well i'll, I'll just read it to you I'll have sebastian read it to you um this study that comes from nowhere that's very very hard to pin down and the bbc in 2017 published this great article busting the attention span myth where in in a manner entirely after my own heart, they went went into the details and tried to work out where these assertions were coming from. Right, Sebastian, if you could read that one for us.
2: Now, you probably won't get to the end of this article because everyone knows our attention spans are getting shorter. It's just obvious, or is it? In the always connected world of social media, smartphones and hyperlinks in the middle of everything you read, it can feel that much harder to stay focused. And there are statistics too, they say that the average attention span is down from 12 seconds in the year 2000 to eight seconds now. That seems remarkably specific. It first does. In. Uh, that is less than the nine second attention span of your average goldfish. Now, if you if you just you don't
1: have to look very hard, just type in goldfish and attention and you will find a million images and
2: GIFs and memes to support that theory or to back up that theory. Um, as they go on to say, carry on so you might have seen those stats in time magazine the telegraph the guardian usa today the new york times or the national post maybe you heard a harvard academic citing them on us radio or perhaps you read the management book brief but if you pay a bit
1: more attention to where the statistics come from the picture is much less clear
2: all those references lead back to a 2015 report by the consumer insights team of microsoft canada who surveyed 2,000 Canadians and also studied the brain activity of 112 people as they carried out various tasks. However, the figure that everyone picked up on about our shrinking attention spans did not actually come from Microsoft's research. It appears in the report, but with a citation for another source called Statistic Brain.
1: A quick Google, and it's easy to find out where they got it from. The Statistic Brain website looks pretty trustworthy too. It even says that they love numbers, their purity and what they represent. Just the kind of people who we can get along with. And as if to prove it, the number lovers at Statistic Brain source all their figures, but the sources are infuriatingly vague.
2: And when I contact the listed sources, the National Center for Biotechnology Information at the US National Library of Medicine, and the associated press neither can find any record of research that backs up the stats
1: my attempts to contact statistic brain came to nothing too if you've been watching um amazing series thoroughly moving about dope sick about the uh, purdue pharma expansion of um, oxycontin that's all based on, it was their entire thing was based on a study which was used as the basis for um rolling out this highly addictive opioid and claiming that it wasn't addictive. It's was all based on one article. There's a beautiful episode where the researchers that for the prosecution who were trying to bring Purdue Pharma down try and find this article that's been used as the basis for the evidence that that you know oxycontin wasn't addictive. And it it turns out to essentially be like that bit in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It was one letter to the editor uh, published in a filing cabinet in a disused toilet with a sign saying beware of the jaguar type of thing sorry jaguar in this country isn't
3: it <laughs> jaguar <laughs> um
1: but that so that so the number is meaningless and yet you'll see it over and over and over again this idea that we have attention spans that are some amount of seconds long and um, that they are decreasing that they have decreased significantly comes from junk studies it comes from unsourceable studies it comes from people citing sources citing sources citing sources that lead nowhere evidence from nowhere and this is why my training as a study of um, 19th century anecdotes really helps but the final thing before we go um is is to question the idea of what this attention span concepts uh, means in the first place can you uh, read us that bit please
2: i have spoken to various people who dedicate their working lives to studying human attention and they have no idea where the numbers come from either Task dependent in fact they think the idea that attention spans are getting shorter is plain wrong i just don't think that's true at all uh, says dr Gemma briggs a psychology lecturer at the open university simply
1: put because i don't think that's something that psychologists or people interested in attention would try and measure and quantify in that way
2: she studies attention in drivers and witnesses to crime and says the idea of an average attention span is pretty meaningless
1: it's very much task dependent How much attention we apply to a task will vary depending on what
2: the task demand is and we can probably all intuit that can't we i know
1: (laughs) the idea that we can't pay attention for more than eight seconds is disproved by literally any facet of our lives in any way at all (laughs) it's just utterly mad and yet there are ted talks from this year again you put in anything like that and it's our attention spans are shrinking we're in crisis Kids these days can't pay attention for one, two seconds. You know me to turn away from an inland waterway. (laughs) And uh, yeah, the last thing that remains before I play the outro and take us out is that poor goldfish are, are the most maligned humans in this. It turns out that there's no evidence that goldfish or fish in general have particularly short attention spans or memories, despite what popular culture suggests. 2020 answer, no, article. No, you don't have the attention span of a goldfish. Even goldfish don't have the attention span that's put to them. In fact, they're used by researchers in in memory tasks because, in fact, they do have memories that function and do things. (laughs) Yeah, Tom is saying this is my longest show ever. Well, no, I used to do an hour and a half show back in the day, like it says I do, only then I sort of like just unilaterally decided it was only going to be an hour long. But I'm back, baby. I'm back in the studio (laughs) recording my most 90 minutes show ever. All right. Thank you for listening, um, or if you're listening back later. Essentially, the message of this show has been that while there is a lot of research to do on depression and anxiety and young people and etc., because that is important, largely most of it is absolute bunk. That smartphones are doing terrible things to our young people, that they're destroying a generation. Um, it's an endless replication of a crisis, an alleged crisis in the quality of young people and very particularly their mothers that we've seen, not just for the last 70 years in culture, because I really took us from televisions to now, but in every form of technology. I did a previous show about how novels were, were about to end the world for young people due to dangerous reading of novels. Um, don't believe the hype, people. And always look at when poor parents and poor mothers and mothers in general Are being blamed for some kind of alleged societal malaise that is it from me have a (laughs) have a lovely monday and i will see you all next week
0: you've been listening to teachers talk radio tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org we look forward to hearing from you next time on teachers talk radio